Classical Christian schools believe the Greeks understood something critical about human nature and how to raise up a fully formed human being. They missed out on the Christian answers, but they did get the questions right. Their view of the ultimate end or telos of an education still rings true today. If you ask a modern parent on the street corner what they want out of their child's education, you're likely to hear something along the lines of, I want my child to be happy, moral, get a good job. But the Greeks, they wanted something more for their children, and so should we. Join us for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Basecamp. I never take it for granted. I was thinking the other day, it hasn't been that long ago that podcasting was a very new idea of which many people had no idea what it even meant. I remember going to conferences and talking about Basecamp Live podcasting, and I honestly think people thought I was talking about some gardening term where I had to do with scattering seeds or something. So podcasting's come a long way. But with that has come a lot of choices, and so it means even more than ever that you're taking the time to listen. It's always fun to hear from you, to find out uh, what's on your mind and what you're up to while you're listening. I want to say a special shout-out to Jim Whiteman, headmaster of the Westside School in Ohio. Jim, it's good to see you this summer um, at the conference. There's a lot of of you came up to the table and introduced yourself, and it was really meaningful. So it's always good to be with you and to hear from you. So info at Basecamp Live is a great way to uh, email in the non-conference season when we're just uh, distanced and electronically separated. But there's definitely a meaningful connection when we're able to be together. Really grateful to have Dr. Louis Marcus back on Basecamp. I think this is probably the fifth episode with him over the many years. Uh, Dr. Marcos is professor of English and scholar-in-residence at the Houston Baptist University. He speaks widely on ancient Greek, Roman, um, history, along with uh, Lewis and Tolkien uh, commentary and writing. He also speaks on apologetics and classical education, of course. He has 23 books, including From Achilles to Christ, On the Shoulders of Hobbits, Apologetics for the 21st Century, uh, Worldview Guides to the Iliad, Odyssey, and Aeneid, and he's even written two children's novels, The Dreaming Stone and In the Shadow of Troy. Um, there is a lot that Louis Marcos inspires us every time we have the opportunity to talk with him and connect uh, to him. The discussion today was especially meaningful because he took us back to those early days of the Greeks and really looked at the way that they educated their own children. And it's, I think, as urgently needed today, especially as there's more confusion than ever around what does it really mean to educate and to raise up the next generation. So without further ado, let's jump into this interview with Dr. Louis Marcus. Well, Louis Marcus, welcome to Basecamp Live. Thanks for having me back on. It is so good. We are here together live at the ACCS conference in, in Dallas, and it's great just to get to see you again. It is great to be back in Dallas and see people with faces and not masks. People, I know. We're ready. People are hungry for the yeah. fellowship. My son uh, is in college at Baylor, made a funny comment. He said his fr- freshman year, of course, everybody's wearing masks, and so, so your brain actually 
kind of creates yes. what you think their fa- their mouth is supposed to look like. And so it was rather disorienting when people's you know mask came off and like, well, that that mouth doesn't fit you. You were supposed to have a That's different. That's right. So at any rate, all that to say, it's good to be be here live with you and. Uh, this is actually, I went back and looked, Louis, this is the fifth time you've fifth been time. on base camp. Um, and uh, we've been doing this for about five years. And I encourage folks to go back. I was looking back. We've talked about the great books um, and really, you know, why they matter. We've talked about, you know, could, and to that end, another episode, should Christians even read pagan classics? We, we have that sometimes come up. Uh, we talked at one point about um, uh, beating Hollywood, storytelling and capturing um, and, and shaping students' hearts, mm. and then wisdom from the ancients uh, for flourishing today. So obviously, this is your your deep area is, is helping us journey into the classics. And so we're here today to talk about uh, this idea of just how did the how did the ancients shape virtuous citizens? So l- let me just maybe kind of back up. Maybe some p- folks are listening and they're just thinking what I actually had a parent say to me a number of years ago. Um, as as they're, they were pulling their kids out of our school, they just said, you know, and this was a real issue, was that we are so fixated on these Romans and Greeks, and we're just really not in touch with the modern world. And, and so uh, beginning there, like why why the Greeks? Why should we go back 2,000 years and point to these folks? I know they had some really amazing sandals right. and robes, but <laughs> beyond that, go ahead, Louie, why, why well, these folks? Let's begin with a sentence that will get us in more trouble. Uh-oh. And that is, the Greeks are important because that's the birthplace of humanism. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought humanism's the enemy. No, no, no. Okay. Secular humanism okay. is the enemy. Humanism, you could be a humanist Christian, you could be a secular human. Humanism merely means that human things are important. Human things are worth preserving. We are rational creatures. We have choice, and I don't mean we have complete free will, but we're rational and volitional creatures, and what we do matters. Simplest way to put it, Before the Greeks, there were lots of civilizations that were thinking. What the Greeks did is they started to think about thinking. We're moving, they start asking the big questions. It's not just about subsistence and getting enough to eat and drink and be clothed. It is, who am I? Mm. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is the nature of the good man, the good society, uh, the, the good state? Uh, what, what, what is the nature of the good or the true or the beautiful? What is justice? They're asking these questions. A simple way to put it is we've all heard of Pythagoras, right? The Pythagorean theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C, C squared, squared right? right? Well, we now know that the Egyptians already understood that if you had three pieces of string, three inches, four inches, five inches, it would form a right triangle. So why do we say Pythagoras invented it? Because Pythagoras came up with the theorem. He realized that in any triangle, any right triangle, even one you can't see, the sum of the square, the the square of the hypotenuse equals the sum of the square of the other two sides. He saw that there was something behind reality, that, that there is a truth and an order engraved. The word cosmos is a beautiful word. A little different than universe. Universe is sort of unity and diversity. But cosmos is a Greek word, and it has the same root as the word cosmetics. Mm. Now, what do cosmos and cosmetic possibly have to do with each other? C-O-S-M, cosm, is the Greek root that means ornament. Mm. The cosmos is the ornament of God. There is unity. There's wholeness. There's beauty in the co- that's why it's ironic that Carl Sagan called his show Cosmos because right. he, he said billions and billions of stars. But Sagan is one of the people that basically t- 
took away the beauty of the heavens right. and just made it into stuff moving around in space. Right. It's really funny. He, he had that look in his face, yeah. but he didn't really understand it. But cosmos is, I mean, a good way to put it is that whether it's the laws of mathematics or the laws of morals or the laws of planetary motion, there's all a unity there. And we're part of that unity. And we want to see and name the unity. Because, of course, Pythagoras did not invent the Pythagorean theorem. He discovered it, it right. right? It was already there. Sure. And the Greeks wanted to discover the deeper meaning of the cosmos, but also the deeper meaning of us as human beings, ultimately made in the image of God. So if you're not a humanist, are you, I mean, what what would be the contrast? I mean, probably a barbarian. I mean, yeah. you'd be like an animalist. I mean, you just were... It would be. Somebody <clears throat> somebody that's just getting by a, a, a complete pragmatist or right. a complete utilitarian. Which feels like modern day. Yeah, it really com- does. Yeah. But so, but back then, if you if you could observe, I mean, what jump started the Greeks to to kind of have this deeper level and appreciation of, of qu- inquiring about their world? I mean, it's what amazing. Was it? yeah. I mean, they they all grew up again. Now, yeah. you know, Greece is kind of a long period. So, the golden age of Greece, the real birthplace of humanism, is the fifth century B.C. Athens. In 490 B.C. and again in 480 B.C., they defeated the Persian Empire. Yeah. You've heard those names: yeah. Battle of Marathon, Salamis, Thermopylae, and the 300 Spartans. Yeah. Well, after that. That it, it just opened up the floodgates and they had a sense of themselves. But it goes back to Homer. You know, Homer's several hundred years before. He's writing this great epic, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And what's interesting when you contrast the Iliad and the Odyssey with a lot of the Asian ideas, okay, the Iliad and the Odyssey are tragic, especially the Iliad, is very, very tragic. But it's not fatalistic. It's not there's no meaning in the universe. It's just destiny crushing me. There's still a sense that even though Achilles sort of makes a mess of things, he still is a noble human being who's struggling with his own mortality, trying to understand it. So we start here with Homer, with the, with the Achilles and with Odysseus, with heroic characters who are trying to step out and wrestle with their own mortality. So, so, so it starts there. So is it fair, to, and again, I'm maybe oversimplifying, but the Greeks were really the first ones to properly frame the questions? Yeah. Is that really what that's it is? That's it. Okay. And, and that's why, as classical Christian educators, students, parents, the, the pagans don't always have the right answers. Right. But they ask the right questions. Right. They're pushing. So that, again, I've said this so many times, as a believer, we all believe that Jesus fulfilled completely yeah. the Old Testament law and prophets. It, it, I say he also fulfilled the highest yearnings of the pagans. He answered their questions. Right. They only got so far. Well, it is interesting if you step back in history, sort of right about the time, maybe within a few centuries, that the Greeks finally got the questions right, the answer arrives. Actually, you're right, yeah. And uh, if you really want to understand it all, read The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. Mm. Uh, Christian view of the history yeah. of the world, huge influence on C.S. Lewis, yeah. one of those top ten books he listed. And he shows, for instance, how in the great Punic Wars... That was the Romans fighting the Carthaginians, most famous being the Second Punic War, uh, 218 to 202, and that's where uh, Hannibal mm-hmm. was defeated by Scipio, right? Yep. What he shows is what you have in the Punic Wars is the good pagans and the bad pagans. There is a distinction, okay? None of them can be saved on their own, but there still are good pagans right. that are better than the bad pagans. And we have to remember the Carthaginians were the Phoenicians. The Jews were supposed to deal with the Phoenicians and stop them, the baby right. killers. Yeah. And they didn't do it. So Chesterton suggests that God raised up the most virtuous of the pagans, the, the Romans who already got ideas from the Greeks, and they defeated them. And yep. then he says, then they reached their highest point, 146 B.C., they destroy Carthage, 
and then they stagnated. They couldn't go any farther. Mm. And so they dwindled down, civil war, all of that sort of stuff. It all ends up with Caesar Augustus. And during his reign, the man who called himself the Prince of Peace and the Son of God. <laughs> just the day happens to yep. arrive just, at that yep, moment. The very moment. How time. convenient. So, yeah. it's, it's all, so that's a good way to put it. The, the questions had, had gone as far as they could. Yep. And now along comes the answer. So, so it, you know, to, to the point of kind of our, our focal point, or the question is how the ancient, how did the ancient shape virtuous citizens? So if you could you know, go back and be a, uh, do the man on the street questions. If you ask a parent today, person on the street, and you ask, what do you want for your child? Ultimately, of course, we can, I guess, pagans today would say, want to be happy, to make money, to do. So, but if you went back and you ask a Greek, they're standing in their sandals, what do you want for your child? Would they, would they talk about something virtuous? I mean, it was just so embedded in their culture. I think it would at that point. It took a while to get there. Right, right. The the fancy Greek is kalos kagathos. Kalos is the Greek word for good, beautiful, kali, and agathos is the word for noble. So I want them to be a good and noble person. Okay. Right. And, and, you know, Plato later on writes this down in the Republic. We want them to be a balanced person. Uh, at Houston Baptist University, one of our mottos is strong in mind and strong in spirit. Mm. Strong in body, strong in mind, strong in spirit. So the same way gymnastics, which was very important for Plato, the same way that gymnastics sculpts the body to make it healthy, mm-hmm. they believe that virtue sculpts the soul. Right Now, here's the big difference between them and the progressive liberal of today. Both of them want to shape humanity, right? right? Yeah. But the Greeks wanted to shape humanity against eternal, transcendent, universal standards of goodness with a capital G, truth with a capital T, beauty with a capital B. The modern one, the modern progressive... It's is, individualistic. Yeah, it's yeah. individual. We're right. just shaping them with whatever thing, whatever's fashionable. Right. Uh, so the shaping itself can be good or bad. Yeah. But the Greeks understood that we've got our values, our virtues, yeah. and we can pass them down to our children through proper education. So what did, and again, in that day, this was not an education for everyone. It was right. it typically would have been more of the upper class. Right, that the would aristocrats. Have, the aristocrats. Right. And so this was, again, uh, perceived to be incredibly desirable and only for a few at that point. Right. But but the notion was that that your child would at least be oriented towards something greater than themselves. Something right. inter- and, and so where did, where did they anchor the idea of goodness come from? I mean, where would they point to goodness? The, That's it. The, now, yeah. yeah, you're right. They don't have the answer yet. They don't have goodness as a person. The, the so person is, that the, the way is goodness survive. the emperor and how he's behaving on any it, given day? I it kind of changes. I mean, in the yeah. beginning with Homer, it is the great hero, the Achilles or Odysseus, right? right? As you move down, okay, the golden age is the 5th century B.C., but it starts around 600 B.C., when Solon, the great Athenian lawgiver, sort of gives birth to democracy. Okay. And what he wants to do is make the law the standard. Yeah. We want a law, something, but of course it's impersonal, right? It's an impersonal law, but we want to shape our citizens against the law and not make it personal. Okay. And we move down and then we have good citizens. And then now as we get to Plato, who's a product of this, this Greek paideia, we'll talk about that word in a second. Yeah. We come down to Plato and he writes in the Republic, now we're shaping them. He's starting to come up with the idea of the forms. Mm. That in our world, there's all sorts of forms of justice with a little j. But in the world of become, the world of being, as he called it, in the heavens, was justice with a capital J. Mm. He's starting to move towards transcendent standards that we can shape ourselves against. And then it awaits Christianity when we find out 
that that standard is it, also a person, it's right? Logos, a divine right, person, the right, logos, right? Right, right, right? That was the word they used, logos, which means logic, of course, but mm-hmm. reason, mm-hmm. speech. It kind of also suggests revelation. Yeah. It's one of those really wonderful filled words. Sure. And then, of course, John says, in the beginning was the logos, the word. Yeah. That's Jesus. He is, the word was made flesh. So you mentioned the word paideia, and I want to, we're going to take a break in a moment, but let's kind of go ahead and set this up. So this is something, again, that I think modern folks, when we think about education, too often look at it in this very narrow reading, writing, arithmetic, and then we do church spiritual stuff on Sunday kind of thing. And what paideia, which I know there's not an easy English translation, Ephesians 6, 4, you know, raising your child Good. in this idea of kind of this fear and admonition, but raising them holistically. I mean, right. it's, it's it's every fiber of your being, I like to explain it. It's not just your head, it's your heart, it's everything. Good, yeah, when they say train up your child, that's the word paideia. It's paideia, which right. is not an easy, again, uh, not an easy translation, but it encapsulates, as Greek words often do, something so much more robust than right. we can figure out in English. So so to the average uh, secular Greek, this was, paideia was in fact the goal. Right. And they would have understood it that way. So go ahead and explain. So yeah, it, yeah. it is education. It's actually the modern yeah. word for just children, right? Think of paideia, a pediatrician. Interesting. Or ped- yeah. pedagogy means leading children. Right? right. That's what that word means. So paideia means education, but... I would call it somewhere between education and enculturation. Right. It is you're passing down not just the three R's, but you're passing down the virtue, the yep. belief, the deep legacy of the culture. That's the only way you can pass it down, well, or it's, it's going to be forgotten. I'm having a flashback to my youth ministry days when we did sort of silly things to illustrate where you would take a glass of milk and you'd, you'd dump uh, chocolate syrup in there and you'd oh, stir right. it up. Which part of that has not got chocolate anymore? Everything oh, in that good. is now, it's fully, there's every fiber of your being, every drop of the milk is now in, in, imprinted with a particular orientation or view of the world or identification, you know, how you identify. We all know that, you know, very important uh, f- uh, verse in Second Timothy, right, uh, that all scripture is God-breathed, right, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's useful adequate, for, useful for, uh, uh, for teaching, exhorting, and training, reproving. Right. reproving. Right. That's the word paideia. There. Yeah, okay. And, and, or remember uh, Hebrews, is it 13? When it says no, you know, no discipline is pleasant at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. That's also paideia there. Okay. Right. So it, it, it it's a much more holistic yeah. thing yeah. that we're passing to where we're kind of like I speak often about. It's not enough to teach your child the virtues. Yeah. You have to teach your child how they are to feel about virtue. Right. So that when they do something virtuous, their chest comes up, they feel proud. Yeah. If they do something vicious, their their shoulders sink and they feel terrible. So it, paideia is a training yeah. of the full person. This, I mean, for those who are listening who, you know, maybe this is still classical Christian education, still relatively new. I was, I've said before, I was probably three years as a head of school, of a classical Christian huh. school, and I did open houses. And I would say these things, but somewhere along the way, and I think it was in a conversation early on with Chris Perrin, he said, Davies, it's human soul formation. Oh, good. And I just... For whatever reason, at that moment, it, it just kind of struck me that it's like going from 2D to 3D. Like, this is mm, so much right. more rich and multifaceted and all-encompassing, and it's not simply just, to your to your comment, it's not just teaching character or some veneer of, right. of proper behavior. It's the deepest level of who you are is being formed. Think of the danger of, watch out if you exercise a demon for someone. Because mm. if you then don't fill that hole yeah. with God's love, grace, presence, seven more demons will <laughs> right. come, and his state will be the worse. And so, yeah. you know, that, that's why, for instance, uh, just my example yeah. is it's really good to teach your children 
to write thank you notes. Ah. But if you've made that into a rote kind of meaningless ritual, yes. it's almost worse. <laughs> they need to learn how to feel That's a grateful great point. and thankful. And again, it might be if, if you teach them, it's best if they're grateful and write the note. But if they write the note and they're not grateful, this actually becomes like they don't even feel like they need to be grateful because they wrote the note. Right. You know, that's why I, I, I love the Asian culture, but they're a gift-giving culture, hmm. which sounds good, but it's a balanced gift. Mm-hmm. I give a gift, you give a gift. Tit for a tat. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and yeah. to me, that's almost worse. Yeah. You're not teaching any kind of, of gratitude or uh, uh, hospitality right. or anything. It's right. just balancing the scales. Yeah, yeah. It's the whole thing of putting your heart into it. So right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to take a break. Let's come back in just a, a moment and, and continue the conversation. I do want to continue to unpack this distinctive um, form of education that, that obviously we point to the Greeks and then we had Christ come in and fulfill right. that. And then we'll kind of kind of walk through history and figure out where we are today and, and what the Greek vision is still critical to who we are as classical Christian educators. So Great. we'll be right, right back with Dr. Louis Marcus. Hey there, I'm Jeremy Tate, founder of the Classic Learning Test, or CLT. Here at CLT, we are big fans of the Basecamp Live podcast, and we're excited to be joining Basecamp in the renewal for classical education. In addition to our beautiful suite of assessments for grades 7 through 12, and soon to be 3 through 6 as well, we have exciting new things going on at CLT. Please check out our new website where you can find out about the Anchored Podcast, the CLT Journal, and upcoming test dates. Head over to www.cltexam.com slash Basecamp. Again, that's www.cltexam.com slash Basecamp. Whether you're a homeschool parent, a teacher, or a school administrator, we would love to support you in your mission fulfilling a classical vision for education. Welcome back to Basecamp here with Dr. Louis Marcus. So Louie and I... Just thinking uh, about if, you know, what was their curriculum? I mean, parents today and teachers, I mean, we make a big deal as we should about which books we're going to study and we only have so much time. I mean, if you could, again, time machine back to the the time of the Greeks, what, what was on their curriculum list? What were they reading? Let's start there. And then why those particular books and how were they bringing about this virtue formation? That's a good question. We'll start even before the books, even before the Homer and the Hesiod and all that. We're starting, oddly enough, with gymnastics. We're sculpting the body, we said before. As in, like, like yeah, cartwheels like and, and, uh, okay. and all of us. I mean, <laughs> right. How do you, you know, because remember, the, you know, the Greek ideal of, of a healthy body is not a, a weightlifter with giant ass. You know, it's, it's, right. it's the kind of balance you see in a swimmer, probably. Mm. A swimmer or, 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 or a, a gym, gymnast, right, where they have a more sculpted body. They're trying to sculpt the body and right. allow it to understand discipline. So we begin there. We all want to and, look like the Statue of David, I guess. Yeah, or something or, like yeah. that. A little yeah. more perfect, ideal yeah. balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not beefed up in that right, sense, right. right? Right, And then music is important. And, you know, Davies, you know, I'm 58, and I get so upset when people, they talk about rap. And they say rap is bad. Well, yes, but all they want to talk about is the four-letter words are bad. Mm-hmm. You know, the music itself is bad. M- music that is like purposely ugly or disharmonious. You know, that, that drove mm. the Greeks crazy, okay? Mm-hmm. You need balance. Harmony. You need a harmony. Right. You need mm-hmm. something that's going to, again, sculpt your soul the way gymnastics. So they understood how important music is. So you're sort of starting there. Mm. And then you and then they understood how important mathematics is. Why is, and especially geometry. Uh, you might know that apparently over Plato's, uh, uh, his uh, 
not Republic, his, his academy, over Plato's academy, it said, only geometers are allowed to enter. <laughs> if you don't know geometry, leave. Please, yeah. Why? Why? Now, that's, that's tough, because we're usually, we're really trivium people, not quadrivium exactly. people. Come right. on, Davies, right? right. <laughs> and why geometry? Because, look, geometry is studying things like triangles and squares. When you're talking about triangles, you're not talking about that little pencil thing you scribble. We're talking about the triangle, the idea of the triangle, the, the invisible triangle. Mm. So real geometry is already training you that there is a reality mm -hmm. beyond our own, that there is something, a triangle, triangle-ness right. of which our attempt at making a triangle is an imitation of that form. So already you're understanding that. Then you're moving into literature. And of course, for them, everything was so, just like, you know, in, in, in the old days of America, the Bible was your textbook for everything. Homer was their textbook for everything. And they, learned, they even learned things like shipbuilding, right? But, but what they're learning is to model themselves after the great heroes, mm. to study them, to see what they did, to have the same virtues instilled in, in Homer's heroes as in ours. And, you know, I, I, every semester I teach a class on Homer, Virgil, and Dante, right? And a lot of my students are increasingly what's called a first-gen student. That means the first person in their family to go to college. Wow. Often in, in, in Houston, it's Hispanic, largely first-gen yeah. Hispanic students. How do we get them in? How do we explain it to them? Well, when I read Homer, Homer takes place in a pre-law society, by which I mean there's no formal legal structure, there's no prison, there's no policeman, there are, you know, they're the wise old man sitting in the sacred circle, but you don't have a full system. Well, how do you stop these boys from just killing everybody, right? They're, they're the soldiers. Mm. You do it by instilling virtues. And I teach them some, some of my favorite Greek words, eidos and nemesis. Eidos means shame. Nemesis means blame. Nemesis is, is in yeah, our... You hear that our, often. Yeah, right. right. That means blame. You, you, mm -hmm. you bring nemesis down upon you. Right. The point is you don't so much teach it as you instill it in them so that they will avoid doing anything that will bring shame and they will also avoid anything that will bring blame. Now, again, students have always, say, plagiarized. But what's scary about today is... In the past, you catch them, and they feel a sense of shame, mm -hmm. right? There's a sort of sense of inner disgust that sh they're still a moral creature that's shaped, and they can come out of it. Yeah. What's really scary is when they're upset they got caught, but they f it's clear they feel no shame, right? They they've lost their moral wow. censor. As it's well, they, they've not been brought up in a proper yeah. paideia. Their, their soul has not been oh, shaped. Jeremiah, they no longer blush. That's, yeah. a, that's a good way to put it, right? Yeah. And in Dante's yeah. Inferno, they, they're no yeah. longer able to blush. Right. The, the mm -hmm. sinners, right? They can mm -hmm. no longer, they, they, they can tell their story, but they never confess because they feel no remorse. Right. So you're, you're instilled. The other word is xenia, X-E-N-I-A. That's the, the guest host relationship, that you, you do what is right. You, you do what is honorable, integrity. I think the best way I can describe the difference between the, the paideia that made not only the Greek great, but the Romans great, the British Empire, our founding fathers, and what we've lost is think about the so-called self-help book. The old days, self-help books were about integrity. Hmm. and honesty, and about how do you behave when no one else is looking. That, that's a paideia that's instilled in someone. It all changed with that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yep. Now, now, thank God Jordan Peterson's trying to go back to real stuff. He, he's not even a believer, but he's more a believer than a lot of believers, understanding the, the human soul. So after that, now you do what you need to do to get ahead, but it's not 
touching you at a deeper level. Mm. You're no longer asking, what would Jesus do? With my students, I also want to ask you, what would Achilles do? What would Antigone do? What would Edith, what would Aeneas do? It's, it's a way of engaging in that. Well, and I think this is really important because, and this is a whole other podcast we should do on just the state of heroes today and, and uh-huh. who are here. I mean, this is, you can tell everything by a culture, by the, true. Who, who their heroes are. So we're not talking about Greeks in this very um, kind of stuffy, formulaic, here are, the, you know, here are the virtues, let's all sit around on a rock and, you know, and, and discuss you right. know, if you want to have fortitude today. I mean, I think it sounds more like they had... In many ways, they were uh, they were um, wanting to emulate these these both heroes and heroines and right. in their strengths and in their weaknesses, right. which is what you're talking about. This is not just perfect people; it's people that are make stupid decisions, and you realize, okay, that's a bad choice right. pattern. Let me go over and, and find something more noble to pursue. This was reclaimed by uh, William Bennett, you know, mm-hmm. when he sure. wrote the Book of Virtues. Yeah, that's right. That you you teach through story through the incarnational aspect of the story, you become part of it. Right. And you want to, you want to be her. I mean, we used to have, you know, Roy Rogers and all these cowboys that would sure. teach the little boys live by a code. This is exciting. And we've sort of lost that now. Paideia is a little bit more of an active yeah. virtue. Right? right. It's love rather than unselfishness right. and this or is, tolerance, which is a negative virtue right. that doesn't really shape your soul. Well, I think that idea of it being an active... I think, again, parents who... Most of us have not been uh, educated in, in any form. In fact, I was just at the SEL conference last week, and I put a survey question out to the entire group of almost 800 people, and I said, what percentage of you were classically Christian educated? Interestingly, it was 13%, that's it, yeah. which which on the one hand, is it's not much. On the other hand, for our little movement, yeah. that's a lot of people who've actually already come all the way through and graduated a right. K-12 classical Christian who are now saying, I want to then put my life back into teaching. Right. So it's an exciting, actually, it's a small number, but it's a significant number that probably Five years ago, it would have been 5%. But my point is that I think we're starting to raise this generation up who sees and knows these stories, understands the value of, right. of this formative form. And my point in mentioning that right then, Louis, is just I think the idea that these are just old stuffy um, stories of just rules that were to follow as, a, as opposed to a better hero to pursue. There's a, there's a great story that the C.S. Lewis tells yeah, in tell Surprised by Joy, which is his <clears throat> spiritual autobiography, uh, when he was in his atheist phase. He'd, yeah. he'd read Plato because he studied him, but he just studied him. And then one day he heard one, one of his f- friends who'd become a believer talking to a, a student, and they were talking about Plato, and he suddenly realized they were talking about Plato as if it mattered. As if the reading of Plato might actually change your belief or your behavior. He was starting to learn what Aristotle understood. Virtue is a habit. Yeah. Virtue is not an emotion. It's not virtue signaling. It's not I feel good about myself. Virtue is you keep practicing virtuous actions until it becomes a habit and until you become a virtuous person. Right. They understood that, that that's at the depth of mm-hmm. paideia. Again, we're, we're shaping, we're cultivating the soil. You see, virtue is not just do's and don'ts. Virtue is acting in coordination with the good, the true, and the beautiful, shaping yourself against that. Uh, You know, uh, many many people know that Aristotle said virtue is the mean between the extreme. Mm -hmm. So obviously courage is not cowardice, but courage is also not foolhardy cockiness where you rush in like a fool, right? Virtue is, is in the middle, and we need to cultivate virtue. Right? We also understand that desire in and of itself is not bad. God put most of the desires in us. But do you have rightly ordered desires 
or do you have disordered desires yeah. that send you off in the wrong direction? Part of enculturation, part of paideia, is to shape your reactions to things. Yeah. That's why we're, they, they're the worst thing of all, the self-esteem movement, never allowing a child to feel ashamed, you're creating a monster. They are no longer a moral center. They just blow with the wind mm -hmm. because they have nothing inside of them to say that's wrong. You know, I'll go off a little on a tangent here, but okay, uh, what was his name? Paul Brand was the, was the missionary doctor in India who discovered what leprosy was or what a certain point. Of, and it's, it's a disease that kills your central nervous system so you no longer feel, mm. right? Now think about it. If you no longer felt pain, you would literally fall apart. Your body would, because you wouldn't do anything. Like you get something in your eye, it hurts so much, you'll do everything. Uh, Imagine if you had no pain sensor. It would stay, it would fester, and you might go nail. blind. You could sit yeah, on a nail and never right. notice. Right. And that's, what, yeah. that's why he said, you know, I, these lepers are missing fingers. I never saw a finger lying on the ground. They literally whittle themselves away. So pain mm. is a signal that you're doing something destructive to your body. Guilt is a signal you're doing something destructive to your soul. And the worst thing coming out of Freud is the idea that guilt is the problem. Mm -hmm. Guilt is not the problem. Guilt is the signal that there's a problem. And if you don't get to it, your soul is going to degrade just like your body does wow. if you don't, right? Yeah. So th yeah. this, this is, That's, again, this is a shaping yeah. of it. Now, I, I want to say quickly for listeners sure. that, okay, if I were to get cancer, it would mess up my pain sensor and it would be going off all the time and that's when I need drugs to help me, right? But that's when the system breaks down. If you have PTSD, you may have an unhealthy form of guilt that you then need to deal with drugs or right. talk or both. But guilt itself is a gift. Sure. It is a signal that helps us to manage yeah. the nature of our soul. Which is, which again, I don't, we're gonna get off on a whole tangent here, but I've always thought, you know, before the fall, if Adam and Eve were in the garden and there was no pain, then they're gardening and you know catch your finger off and yeah. maybe that's not so good like pain's a gift to protect so that's a really important point I no, think. that, that, that yeah. C.S. Lewis says it in, in the problem yeah. of pain he said yeah. you know maybe this is not the best of all possible worlds but it may be the only possible kind of world to allow it right. I mean right. you know again there had to be the possibility of pain because if every time I fell down God turned the rocks into pillows Right. We can no longer play the game. <laughs> right. Everything is meaningless. That, exactly. That's why I'm so tired of endless movies using time travel, which makes all of our choices meaningless. Right. You know, you can use it a little bit judiciously, but when it's overused, you know, you know like, like now, you know, I, I like the MCU, but now with the multiverse, everything becomes yeah. changeable and fixable. Right. There's no, there's no consequences. There's no consequences. Right. Which is what everybody wants is a, yeah. is a, is a you know, a get out of jail card that we can just wave around. Yeah. So. Well, I want to take another quick break. I want to come back because this, uh, you know, speaking of paideia and the, the notion is you've, as you've written about with Western Christian paideia versus sort of a more progressive paideia. And, and obviously there's a lot of folks, including David Goodwin's new book yes. out, that's really trying to, if, for I think, finally make more mainstream this conversation. This paideia thing is really, uh, can be a weapon. I mean, it's yes. what the Greeks understood. In the wrong hands, this thing can be just as powerful in forming our affections, right. our loves, our knowledge, our virtues. And so we are, again, I think a lot of parents that came through the public uh, government school systems right. and everything just had no I, idea, had, yeah. as we all did, it, yeah. I mean, many of us did. So let's take a break and come back because I want to get your thoughts on this idea of Western Christian paideia. He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. 
So Keith, one of the challenges, of course, of having your kids gone all day at a school is when you pick them up, uh, you're going to hear stories of how things went. And because we're fallen humans, we tend to remember the negatives more than the positives. So our kids will say something like, oh, this horrible thing happened today. So-and-so said this to me or this happened or the teacher did such and such. And we, because we're good mama bears and, and, and daddy bears, we're going to, we're going to take on this for our kids and we want to be sympathetic. We want to, we're going to straighten this out. We're going to have a talk with that teacher. We'll send that email. We'll figure it out. Thinking we're sort of defending our child. Is that a good idea? How do we, how, what's the right response to this uh, when kids are coming home like that? Well, I think first we got to look at the difference between sympathy and empathy. And we're in a society today where we, we over-sympathize with things that really don't deserve sympathy. You know, sympathy is really reserved for only those situations, traumatic, loss, grief, where in essence we're saying, I, I'm so sorry and I can just offer you comfort. You know, that's what deserves sympathy. The problem is we misapply sympathy all the time, like the example you gave. So Johnny comes in and says, oh, I had a horrible day today. And we say, oh, I'm so sorry you had such a horrible day. Let me take the burden off of you. Let me go make it right. You know, all this stuff. And we end up blowing all kinds of things up. But the message we're sending to our child is you're fragile. You need to be rescued when really you weren't at war. You were at school. (laughs) You didn't just come home from the logging camp. We've got to understand that our job is to show empathy. Empathy is very different. Empathy is not agreeing with you. Empathy is saying, I'm just acknowledging where you are. But empathy also allows us to reframe it. So when Johnny comes home, instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry you had such a horrible day, which affirms a distorted perception of life, because clearly he was just at school. Even if it was difficult, it was still just school. Empathy allows us to speak to it very differently. And empathy basically would be this. Johnny comes in and says, oh, I've had such a horrible day. And the response is reframing, oh, man, I'm sorry you've had a tough day. And all of a sudden you've opened for conversation. Do you want to tell me about it? Now, the funny thing is nine times out of ten, <laughs> the child will say no. Right. Which already establishes real, most likely it wasn't that horrible. But then it allows you something else. It allows you to encourage and speak truth. And you say that by saying, you know, gosh, I'm sorry you had a tough day. You know what? Why don't you go on and change your clothes, get your snack, get on your homework. You'll be okay. Yeah, because I think it, it certainly creates in the child this ability to, they, they will default to the negative because the negative actually right. creates the most response from the parent. Right. But if we're empathetic yeah. and we just steer them, we say, I hear you. If you want to talk about it, I'll talk about it with you. But now go on and take care of what I know you can take care of. Well, when they go do that, their reality now matches the truth you told them. They are okay. Yeah. They got through it. Yeah. And it's amazing. Then everything's not horrible anymore. Yeah. And that way, instead of affirming a distorted perception, we're we're building a correct perspective. We're informing a correct perspective of life that even things that feel difficult are rarely that big a deal. Yeah. It also brings a little bit more joy in your house when you're not having to always walk around with a frown on your face. All right, Keith, thanks so much. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? Well, send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website. So Louis, we began talking about the Greeks and and all the uh, really the um, inception for 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 our civilization really of how do you create virtuous citizens and we talked about Jesus really being the answer to that and then we can't really jog all the way our, our way all the way through the last two thousand years but a lot has happened in the twentieth century in terms of the hijacking of Paideia yeah. um, by folks that went honestly and this is like a plot we need to make this into a really interesting movie you talk about a you know, someone who gets the uh, 
this kind of orb of control. If you control the paideia, because it so deeply right. fabricates and forms every bit of who you are as a being, whoever controls that thing, you can rule the world. Right. And, and so this is, you know, the progressives and the liberals and uh, those who are anti-God have said, we want control of the orb of truth. And, who said they, yeah. they quite often, Abraham Lincoln said, you know, whoever controls the schoolroom of today yeah. controls the government of tomorrow. Right. And, right. and, and they, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. That's a, that doesn't mean it's a conspiracy, but they knew what they were doing. Yeah. They, 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 they realize if, if they're progressive, they're trying to bring about a secular humanist world, a utopian world, sure. all of that sort of stuff, throw out. They knew that the only thing that could stop them is Christianity, and specifically the Western Christian paideia. So the, the, the Western paideia of Greece and Rome gets passed down and filtered through Christianity to become the Western Christian And, and it remains, can you make, again, these are massive brushstrokes. Yeah. I'm sure some you know, folks who are far more versed in this are thinking, you guys are like massively skipping over it, but I'm trying to be big brushstrokes. So from the Greeks going forward through the centuries, more or less, and then obviously Christ message into it, it remains intact, if you will, it does, up until right. 19th century? Like, really, when does it start century. unraveling? I mean, okay. it starts unraveling you know, with, with the Enlightenment, yeah. right? But then in our country, see, you know, I, I've not only read Battle for the American Mind, I've talked yeah. with David Goodwin, read yeah. the original version, the longer version <laughs> was part of the, the yep. show, uh-huh. and, and I learned a lot of things. I thought, as most of us did, that the progressive takeover of the American school system started in the 1960s and 70s when they took the Bible and prayer out of school. Yeah. And I realized, no, 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 the progressive <laughs> Way takeover, before that, it didn't right. start in the 1960s, it started in the 1860s, right? right. Yeah. This, they, they basically reached their culmination in the 60s and 70s when they had those Supreme Court cases and unconstitutionally took the Bible and prayer right. and the, the last remnants of the WCP, the Western Christian Paideia. Now, here's the thing that I learned, and it just broke my heart. I'm a patriotic American, is that back in the 1860s, 1870s, they, they couldn't just throw out the Western Christian. They needed a substitute. Can we find a sort of secular religion that will fill the gap for a while until we can do whatever we want? And sadly enough, what they turned to was a kind of patriotism, a kind of worship of the flag, and the flag salute. A lot of people don't understand that the original flag salute did not include the words under God. Mm-hmm. It was That's meant Eisenhower, to be. Right? Yeah, Eisenhower during the Cold yeah. War yeah. wanted to distinguish from the literally godless communists, uh, and so he put under God. But the original was meant to be a secular pledge mm. that took the place of the Western Christian paideia. Uh, and there wow. was even a salute that looked like the, the salute in Hitler's time, and they, they changed that quickly. It's quite uh, disconcerting, but, actually, yeah. Right, and, but it took them a while. But here's what's so sad. Yes, today, things like patriotism and the flag and the salute are much more linked to conservatives, but that's because once they had effectively used their patriotic idol, idol to discarded, displace it, yeah, yeah. then they threw and give it to, oh, you guys can have that. We right, can right. have the Pickens. I don't want it anymore. Right, right. Right? They really want to move towards a Marxist that completely redoes everything, sure. in which man remakes man. But of course, yeah. the ones that are remaking it are the conditioners, as Lewis calls them, in the abolition of man. And it was slow. And that's why we sometimes think that the 1950s were a golden age. They were still progressive schools. Mm-hmm. They were still schools that were not about shaping people in accordance with goodness, truth, and beauty. Right. They were utilitarian. They were pragmatic. And that's why, seriously, Davies, we, we've got to be careful because progressivism has has manifested itself in two ways, sort of branches. One way has led to a CRT, critical race theory, LGBT, all the stuff we know is bad. But it also gave way 
to this utilitarian. Mm-hmm. Everything's got to be vocational. It's got to be practical. STEM program. And, yeah, STEM, right. Yeah. Get rid of liberal arts. Liberal yeah. arts would freeze the mind. And too often, good conservatives think, oh, well, of course, because they, we have bought into a utilitarian thing that is not really Christian. Yeah. It's enlightenment. So yeah. we have to open our eyes and see what's happening and realize that we're no longer forming character. Yeah. Now, what they did is they threw out the traditional virtues, but instead of leaving a blank hole, they filled it with inclusivism, right. egalitarianism, the of nice. equity, yeah. all, the, yeah, that's all, all of that's all yeah. those negative things of yeah. uh, virtue signaling because they know that, that we're, we are made for virtue. If they just completely threw, there'd be a vacuum and we'd come get them. So let's do it slowly, slowly, yeah. until it reaches its natural fulfillment yeah. in the sort of craziness of, of so, CRT. So, I mean, could you make the case really what we're experiencing as classical Christian schools is, is part of a reawakening that it's in going back and anchoring back to the Greeks? It because is. Because this is where we lost, you know, again, it, it was a slow drift away, but right. we're going back to kind of the original source material, kind of Josiah finding the lost book of the law. Like, there it, there it was. Let's go back. Right? We are the true radicals. Yep. Radical comes from the word radix, mm-hmm. which means root, as in the word radish, right? Yep, yep. And we are the ones who are radicals. We're going back to, just like our founding fathers. Yeah, exactly. They, now, yep. the, 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 the people that did the French Revolution, they were throwing out the past completely and remaking man, remaking everything. Yep. They even changed the days of the week, the years, everything. Throw it out. Although it turned out to be a parody because... You know, in a Catholic country, they often have those marches where they have a giant paper mache, yeah. uh, Virgin Mary. Well, they just took that and they secularized. So they mm-hmm. actually had giant things of, of the goddess of reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, but because again, we we, can't, we have to have something. Yeah, we, we can't, can't just be, make it up out of the, right, out of the blue. Right. But like I said, if you look at 1776 as a verse of, of, uh, next to 1789, you'll see the difference. Yeah. Our founding fathers, they weren't all believers in the literal sense. But they all grew up with the Western Christian paideia. Mm-hmm. They knew that there was such a thing as reason and logic and reason debate. And, and that's what they were forming. Yeah. Right? And, and, and it's amazing they created a document that is still there, even though it's been attacked in every... Yeah. It's still there somehow. Right. Well, and that's, you see that throughout our culture. I mean, I, I think it was Oz Guinness talked about kind of the long... Or the cut flower, where you know, if you cut a flower, it will look pretty decent for a right. while. In fact, for a long while. So, I mean, most of the 20th century, the flower had probably been cut. But right. we continue to speak in these moral ways that were really biblical, but we detached right. it from the Bible. So, you know, be, love your neighbor or right. anyhow, it's, it's, it is a, uh, these are critical days, but I, again, what a wonderful thing to be a part of a movement that again, we're not like so many progressive educators, they just grasping at the latest right. new thing to throw at the wall. We're anchoring deep to something yeah. we know has worked for 2,000 years. And, and it yeah. also it also makes sense sort of psychologically. Yeah. That's how you form a character. That's right. Character formation. Uh, are you a fan of um, the Emperor's Club? Um, I mean, I know of it. I'm not a anyway, big follower of it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it was good. And, and, and the yeah. teacher's trying to shape it. And he's talking yeah. to the rich father who's yeah. made a, a shambles out of his son's life. He doesn't hold him accountable anything. And the teacher says to him, well, if you don't help me to understand, how am I going to shape your son's character? That's my job, not your job. Yeah. He attacks yeah. him. And I watched that movie with my son, and I saw him clench his fist, and I'm like, he's going to be a classical educator. And he is. <laughs> Six years down to Geneva Burning near San Antonio. There we go. Yeah. And, and, but, it, but it's a matter of, but it, you know, it's sometimes too late. If we don't instill those things That's in exactly the now, right. That's right. it may be too late. They, yeah. they can't think. They're not thinking in moral categories yeah. anymore. 
And that's really the tragedy. It is. It's just the tragedy of our culture is today. I mean, you, and this is why this is the long game. And it's, it's, it's unfortunately not an, you know, we're a microwave culture, but talking about a K-12 journey, it's 13 years to form this, a human soul. And and not that God can't redeem someone who's gone off, but, um, but well, a lot more we could say we're running out of time, but it just, thank you for helping us to kind of be reminded again of, of why the Greeks are so important to us as we shape and cultivate character They're and, foundational. and virtue. Yeah. And yeah. remember, God chose to incarnate himself in human history mm. at the height of this Greco-Roman Western, well, Western Paideia, yeah. it's not Christian yet. But I mean, there, there's a reason for that, right? It's, yeah. it's in, a, in a world, and, and just one, one last thing, because this yeah. is so important. At the core of the Western Christian Paideia is the idea of reason and logic mm-hmm. and reason debate. Today, those things are actually being demonized as mm-hmm. white supremacy. Right. And if right. we lose the ability to communicate along rational rules, we can only shatter yeah. each other. It's just, yeah, it's just barbarians with clubs yeah, with each other. Yeah, we, we, we right. can't. So, I mean, right. it's, it's, it's a matter of life and death right, right now. Well, you know, as you're saying, I'm thinking about just Paul at the Areopagus. I mean, isn't that an interesting moment where yeah. here, are all of the, here are these, you know, rightly ordered questions right. and now an opportunity to, to present a, the correct answer. Right. And, and we don't even... There's not a forum like that anymore yeah. where there's civil discourse and, and thoughtful. I mean, you're right. That's the problem is you can have all the right answers, but if someone's yelling at you, yeah, you're Mer- not going to have a civil discussion. Mer- so. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis began its life as broadcast talks given over BBC radio right. during the Battle of Britain when the Nazis are bombing London. They, they asked him to do it. What is this Christian civilization we're fighting to preserve? Isn't that amazing? Right. And, and he was able to do it. There, there right. People understood him. There right. was a, a common... Well, the, the flower had been cut, maybe, but it was still yes, a flower. Still it was a recognizable flower. Yeah. It wasn't a pile and of There dust. was a vocabulary of words that right. had meaning. Yes. We don't just keep changing the meaning of the words one after another. Right. Because Greek, Greek philosophy, which is Western philosophy, is born out of Socrates not only having Socratic debate, but asking a simple question. What does justice mean? Right. Not just this, what is virtue? Right. Not just this, what is virtue with a capital V? Yeah. He started asking questions, and he began by getting away with the bad ones. Yeah. And then it really took Plato to build up and get the right answer. Yeah. Socrates had a lot of digging out work to do uh, before he could actually rebuild the building. Right. Well, the encouragement, and we end on this, is just obviously it's easy to get discouraged in our culture today or to look at young people and, and their lack of ability to engage. And we look at students who come through classical Christian schools, again, we're still fallen. We're not perfect, but at least there is an, a deeply uh, held understanding of who one is and and what the questions are and right. what the answers are. I mean, this is uh, yeah. profound and important work. So and thank you for all you're doing. That's good. And CCE is doing it. Classical Christian education is well, at the root. Well, thanks for being such a great um, encourager. And, and again, I can't commit you at 22 books now. Is that right? Yeah, that, actually, uh, yeah. I think 23 now. 23. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. Well, we will have you back on because you've got a, the new book coming out on yeah. CS Lewis for Beginners. Yep. Okay. That's, yeah, that's that sounds out. great. Okay. So we're keeping busy. You are definitely a, a, a busy man. Thank you for taking time to be on Basecamp. Thanks for having me on. All right. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Hannah Davies' daughter here. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I can confidently say that my kindergarten through college classical Christian education has become a critical part of my life. It formed and trained me to be a strong leader, to love God. And now as a married young adult, it's really created a foundation for me to go out into the world, a world that's getting crazier by the day. So thank you for listening to this podcast. It's absolutely critical what's being discussed here. If you could take a moment and send an email to info at basecamplive.com. Let us know where you're from, where you're listening, 
what's on your mind. We're so grateful that you're part of this Basecamp Live community. Thank you for being here. Please do tell a friend and give a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform. Thank you so much. See you next time.